Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. My name is Matt, and this episode is the fifth, I think, in a series of conversations exploring Clayton Crockett's book, Energy and Change, A New Materialist Cosmotheology. Matt Valor and I were joined by our friend Petra Carlson, and we were reflecting on and discussing chapter four, which is titled of spirit in Amerindian voodoo and Chinese traditions. I don't have too much to say about the conversation itself other than uh, I enjoyed it. And some interesting questions came out of it that perhaps we'll put to Clayton when we talk to him. Next time, we'll be talking to Mary Jane Rubenstein about the final chapter on radical theology. So looking forward to that, obviously. Part of the conversation here relates to Deleuze's concept of the time image he develops in Cinema 2, which I don't think gets talked about as much as some of his earlier work. So we talk a little bit about that, and Petra gives, I think, a great introduction to that idea. Uh, And I also put something together that I thought uh, could be helpful, and you'll, you'll hear that in the episode as well. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. If you go there, you'll see a big button that says leave us a message. If you click on that, you'll be able to leave us a voice message. So if you want to put any questions to Clayton, go ahead and drop a voice message there. And we'll more than likely use that as, as part of the discussion whenever we talk to him. And with that... Here's our conversation with Petra on chapter four of Energy and Change. Peace. Hi. Hi, Petra. How's it going? Hi. Good. How are you? Good. It's good to see you again. Have you yeah, been? Yeah, good to see you too. Uh, good. Good. I felt that this text that we've been reading for today related to a lot of things that I've been in. Hmm. Like in the last couple of years, I think, really. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You want to say more about that? It has to do with, to make it a long story, it began when I was uh, a guest lecturer at Drew with Catherine Keller, and it was the BLM movement, the protests in its, like, height. And I started, like, well, first of all, I had so much climate anxiety going there and going by plane. So I felt pretty bad just to be there. And I just realized that I can't have my like scholarly career or whatever you call it abroad. I just, I kind of need to make it local. <laughs> so, because I can't keep flying to all of these different places, it won't be safe due to like actual climate change and it won't be like sustainable. So I need to rethink that. And also I realized what is like the BLM movement of Scandinavia who in my society has a similar kind of position as the blacks in the state. And that is uh, the indigenous uh, Sami people of the North, which is part of my ancestry. Uh, and I just realized that my family is so involved in colonial businesses up North. And and then so I, I kind of got into studying that and also to studying what is uh, thinking, if you think from like the ground beneath your feet, rather than from kind of imported ideas from the states or so so all of that and all of that i want to say this mr baker also because it has uh, it relates to our relationship as we were beginning to do podcasts together i was also kind of relocating kind of my thinking i i realized i just need to be more kind of uh, local in my way of thinking well i'm sorry to be the uh the inadvertent colonialist <laughs> no, it's not that. I mean, now I'm also the colonialist. It was just like, yeah, I guess you were like a, a colonial temptation in my life. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> that sounds uh, almost good cool. that way. Yeah, borderline erotic. All right. <laughs> yeah, it does. That's, I appreciate that. I mean, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've even been trying to learn like the indigenous uh, languages here which is mm. really difficult not succeeding in that so how have you been <laughs> i'm doing well yeah yeah my life is uh considerably more more boring less eventful but also far more stable so 
uh, because of that. I think it's like partly a midlife thing, kind of dealing with uh, just, yeah, my life is considerably different from a few years ago. And um, whatever, I have a therapist. I won't bother you with it all, but <laughs> yeah, we're doing well. We're doing well. And how about Matt Feller? I don't know what, what what can I call you? I can't call you Matt, but is that why you're calling me Mr. Baker? Because I that yes. sounded a little bit odd. Okay. I think we have to go with surnames, some other like nickname. I don't know what that would be. M1, M2. <laughs> Who's which, Matt? <laughs> All right. Um, so Matt and I were talking briefly yesterday about what might be the a good way to approach uh, the text so we're not kind of bouncing back and forth. Not that there's any wrong with that kind of meandering approach. Sometimes that, that works for us. We thought, well, let's just work from the beginning and take it section by section. Having said that, I also, <laughs> uh, I just finished reading it this morning and um, there's just one sentence here at the end that I think maybe summarizes this in the most broad sense. Uh, on 226, he writes, in this chapter, I have engaged with Amerindian, Voodoo, and Neo-Confucian ideas about energy and spirit from the perspectives of new materialism and non-equilibrium thermodynamics. And then a little bit further down, I'm reading them diffractively, setting up a pattern by superposing the three traditions onto each other and interpreting what resonates through them, which accords with non-equilibrium thermodynamics and new materialist philosophies. So yeah, again, just to kind of give the broadest view of what's going on here in the chapter before we dive into it. I think I actually want to pick up on that, if that's okay, and maybe yeah, sure. plans for the structure. <laughs> that's fine. Because I, I found that that was really helpful to me that he ended that way. And I wrote next to that, I wrote, uh, Clayton is becoming the horse. Hmm. Uh, because I at first I felt that Clayton becomes the horse. Because at first it felt that there was something with bringing in the indigenous traditions into a book with energy change, those kind of singularities that are so easily translated into one origin or one divine or so. And his also narrative in this chapter is about kind of, I felt that there could be the risk of kind of bringing all of these different traditions and expressions into a kind of a Western framework for thought where it all starts making sense and, and where it all comes together and where like, oh, so this is energy. You can translate this into energy and change and look, it's here even in Haiti. And uh, But then when he said that at the end, because by then I also felt that this chapter expresses parts of like Clayton's craziness, like his mind is like going all over the place and bringing all of these different things together. But in that way, I find that he's also creating something that is like these time images. I mean, it's these images that don't go from A to B to C. It's not like with an origin, a middle and end, but it, it's a kind of a collage of assemblage, I guess, of ideas. And that is why I felt that he becomes the horse, which relates to his way of describing voodoo tradition. Yeah, I, no, that's that's really good. I love that. We'll get to, I think, what you mean by the horse when we talk about the voodoo stuff. But yeah, I think that's right. In fact, Matt and I were briefly messaging back and forth yesterday. And, you know, he mentioned that the stuff on Cinema 2 was a little bit enigmatic. And it, it was for me, too. Um, the idea that there's a interruption in the flow of thought in talking about this interstice between perception and reaction, I suppose, right? He's trying to disrupt our thinking through these different plateaus. He did a similar thing in the uh, the final chapter of his book on Derrida, where there's a kind of performative sense in which he's creating, he's bringing these disparate things together into a series to create intensity, uh, which I think is really interesting. I really like the idea of uh, how you describe that, Petra, as a, as a, there's a risk that he's trying to bring everything into a coherent whole and resolve it all. Uh, but actually a diffraction pattern, the diffractive reading is something different. I think I still struggle with that as an overall comment on this chapter. Uh, I love the the kind of madness of Clayton's thought and his ability to bring things together. There's some things in this chapter I found, particularly the detour into Chinese philosophy, for example, it feels like it's like its own massive field. 
and it gets like six pages or something uh, to kind of zip through. Well, I don't, you know, I wouldn't go with this guy, go with that guy and then this guy, but only if we take the reinterpretation of this other guy by that third, you know, fourth person. And you're like, I I mean, I'm, I'm loving the fact that we can see some resonances and dissonances with the Chinese tradition, so I can really see the value of that. From another point of view, I didn't know if it was just attempting so much that I'm not quite sure what I'm left with at the end. But describing that as a series of time images, I hadn't thought of it like that. So that's helpful to the extent that I understand what a time image is. Gilles Deleuze offers a theoretical exploration of time and movement within the context of cinema. His core argument revolves around the way movement within film shapes our perception of time. We become unified with film, its editing, framing, sound and movement. We fuse with these materials and elements physically, but also perceptually. Deleuze distinguishes between two fundamental cinematic modes, the movement image and the time image. The movement image characterizes films produced before World War II and much of the commercial cinema of the latter half of the 20th century, exemplified by films like Sherlock Jr. 1924 and The Wizard of Oz 1939. In this type of cinema, Movement revolves around characters who are central figures in the narrative. The events depicted on screen are interconnected to illustrate how they impact the characters and vice versa. This type of cinema presents a linear and transparent perception of time, where time is indirectly perceived as a series of continuous movements. Conversely, the time image emerges post-World War II with films such as Last Year at Marienbad, 1961, and La Jetée, 1962. In time image cinema, characters no longer adhere to a conventional linear narrative structure with distinct beginnings, middles and ends. And the editing of shots and scenes does not emphasize a clear progression of events. Instead, they roam freely within the film's temporal landscape. Deleuze argues that we can no longer talk about the past, present, and future as successive moments. Instead, we have to think of time as a coexistence of past, present, and future. Accordingly, he defines duration of the whole as a virtual coexistence, suggesting that time encompasses a multidimensional, non-linear experience. The central idea of the time image is that after World War II, Directors found ways to tap into this virtual coexistence by creating movements that were not tied to a central point. In contrast to the movement image, where the centering is achieved through the linkage of movement patterns, the time image derives its temporal qualities directly from the images themselves. Movements are no longer systematically linked to central points, whether concrete or abstract, but instead, the duration of the whole can be found within the image itself. Yeah, I mean, he bookends this uh, chapter as well. I, I'm realizing now at the very end, he writes, the point is not to interpret the world as Marx asserts, it's to change it. And then, importantly, I think this is kind of a keystone here for me. To change is to change everything, including the logics by which we seek to make sense of it. And then going backwards to the very beginning of the chapter, the first heading is you must change your perspective. What I understand that's happening through this chapter is Clayton is trying to engender a certain kind of uh, reattunement uh, and a reconfiguring of how we think at the most fundamental level. I think that's fair. I think that's what this book is. It's, it's a very like, you know, I fundamentally want to change the entire way that I and you see the world. Yeah, I think so too. And I think bringing in 
the reference to cinema de cinema two. I mean, if you read that, it's really helpful in the sense that. To me, I kind of sense that also oh, that's what he's reaching for <laughs> all along in a sense. And um, if I attempt at at least a, a kind of accessible explanation of that, it's Deleuze is really fascinated with cinema, with the, with the movie, because it's art field where lots is happening in his time. And so he realizes that while like when cinema appeared, everyone was so amazed that there could actually be bodies moving on a flat screen, you know, and, and so, so it was all about that representing and depicting reality in that sense. Oh, look, you can see the move. It's not just still images. So that was what cinema was all about. And that's like the movement image. And so it's an image of movement, which then expresses an idea of time where time is like, oh, look, they're going from the left and then over to the right. And, you know, movies from that time are often, you know, you see everything that they do from like beginning to end. And then the movie makers started to realize, oh, but we can play with how the world appears in, in this uh, kind of format. And so the time image is the cutting together of like uh, then the of past and present and also of like dream visions and and of the actual so that the actual and the virtual all appear like on this flat screen next to each other, which in a sense is more how energy is expressed in the real world, because <laughs> that's closer to our reception of reality and, and of life. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Clayton's then through this entire book is this, he's reaching for the kind of the, the time image idea of energy and of reality and, and of our way of being in the world, which goes along with the leaving behind of the movement image that is leaving behind of the idea that there is a linearity where people go from the left and end up in the right to the right, because I, that's only our illusionary uh, idea of a, a divine control or a subjective human control of reality, which has brought mm. us to kind of, well, a hellish state on the planet. That's really helpful to me, Petra. That that's brilliant summary. I, I can really make sense of that now, and in in terms of what we've been reading in this chapter, and I think that idea of of time and how we think about time. I mean, he's he's relating Deleuze's work in cinema to to the kind of post-war environment where faith in history as a progression has broken down. Um, and I think it's really interesting in relation to Latour, who Crockett engages quite a lot in this chapter as well, uh, like in his essay, We Have Never Been Modern, where he really tries to tease out this fundamental bifurcation in, in European modern society between nature and culture is absolutely related to time. It relies on this fundamental disjuncture with the past to which we can't ever return to. And it's only on that basis that we could have this fundamental separation of nature and culture. You know, I'm thinking about that and what you've just described there. And a lot of this chapter is Crockett dealing with how we perceive time, even in the sense of where it gets into in the earlier part of the chapter talking about Amerindian experience and the kind of European North American perspective that this is essentially a, a society from the past. And yes, okay, some people linger on and we have to figure out what to do with them, but it, there's no sense that this is a present culture that uh, in Crockett's words actually really is a better harbinger of a future for us than anything we're currently caught up in. So that sense of time, this break in time, a past that you can't go back to, is not just a conceptual thing, but it's a real lived um, historical contest for who actually gets to own and be present in the present, which I think um, I think is really interesting. Yeah, and I, I think that relates to what I think that many like scholars or students have experienced that in book, if you if you get these books of like the history of philosophy or the history of the theology, or I have one, the history of the spirit, which is like goes through how the spirit is depicted in different religious or Christian traditions. And it's so fun because it's like a really thick thing. And then in the end, 
part five or whatever in the end that's indigenous and like African perspectives like broadly because those are not kind of part of history you cannot fit them into the linearity of history because they just know they don't fit there so and that's just this obvious sense that our idea of time doesn't hold reality in its expression in its like multiplicity just uh yeah actuality that is a virtuality one of the things that I found was really powerful to kind of get into the first bit on Amerindian perspectivism. Leading into that, he is describing how we think about nature uh, as this sort of, uh, I suppose, more stable condition out of which culture emerges and culture is very fluid and uh, very much subject to human construction and this sort of thing. And the suggestion that he is making where he's saying we need to turn this scenario inside out, I think was really fascinating. And for me, probably the strongest takeaway from this chapter for me, where he's saying, let's invert that. And where in, in sort of more Amerindian indigenous view, the idea of the human, and therefore things that we would call culture, are what are universal. In the tradition, they'll say at the origin, but that's sort of a heuristic, I suppose. So there's a reintroduction of anthropomorphism, but not in this sort of naive way that we've you know, come to understand it. Yeah, I think that's worth getting into that a little bit more because I agree. I think it's a really key part of this chapter. I think it's also just worth setting it up because there's a bit before that in the, in the chronology of this chapter where uh, Crockett's developing the argument from the previous chapter uh, where uh, Karatani, the Japanese philosopher, has talked about these four modes of exchange. We talked about this quite a lot in the last discussion we have, Matt, that you've got this gift economy, uh, you've then got a economy based on domination, which would kind of correspond with a, a stronger nation state. You've got an economy based on commodification, which would particularly these days increasingly relate to a kind of global capitalism uh, that's not necessarily constrained by state capitalism. And then finally, you've got this mode of exchange D, which is like, how would you get back to the gift economy in a way that would allow you to move forward? And I think the key thing from this chapter that we didn't talk about in the previous one, Matt, was that the idea that this, that Karatani talks about mode of exchange D in religious terms. He wants to link it to not so much the birth of religion, but the evolution of religion as a way to think about exchange in a gift economy. And then he talks about, uh, Crockett talks about Schlotterdick and the critique of spirituality, I suppose, for a better word, in, in, in the kind of modern capitalist environment where really everything is about making yourself better so you're constantly on this kind of self-improvement because the whole uh, environment of global capitalism insists more and more on a very strong fixed self and so your your self-improvement is a form of asceticism but you so you're constantly having to change but ironically, that situation never changes because all you're ever doing is trying to change right. uh, and so you get caught in this and so I think Crockett goes along with Schlotterdick's cynical critique of this reason, but wants to say it's from that perspective that we could think about moving to this Amerindian perspective, particularly based on what uh, Viveros de Castro has done in his anthropological work uh, by saying what we in European, broadly speaking, societies have inherited is this mode of seeing nature as fixed and culture as relative. And so we have a cultural relativism. And the idea is that there could be multiple signifiers, but they would ultimately be relating to one signified. So there would be multiple representations of the same referent. And so it's nature that's fixed and it's culture that's relative, and that's what gives rise to multiculturalism and so on. But actually, that switch in perspective, that Amerindian switch in perspective, is the idea that there's a single objective social reality, but that nature is multinatural. 
So instead of multicultural, we have multinatural, and it's the multinatural perspectivism that means that we, that different bodies take different perspectives, but we still share some kind of objective cultural meaning. So I, I think it's brilliant, and I think it's really hard to understand. Uh, it's really hard to wrap your head around. Like, what does it mean to say that there's multiple natures? So there's a there's a quote in there. Um, so as Viveros de Castro puts it here, and then in quotes, nature is the form of the other as body. Yeah. This Crockett carries on. The other being is encountered in the form of an external body and what consists of its nature, which is always multiple, relational and variable. I think it'd be interesting to talk more about what he means by that. Yeah, I think that was a really great description of what I was trying to explain. So I appreciate that. And then just there's another bit here that might help explicate that point, kind of leaning into this idea of animism, which is related to the idea of the human. Let's see, uh, animism proceeds from a proto-world multiverse that is essentially anthropomorphic because humanity is the universal substance that animates it the active principle at the origin of the proliferation of living forms in a rich plural world. So I think this is where you get a return to a certain kind of humanism, but it's in a sort of expanded humanism uh, in this more animist frame. Yeah, I found that really interesting because I've been writing recently on anthropomorphism and anthropocentrism. And I think one of the real challenges that we have, you know, we're in the Anthropocene, a big thing that people say is we need to be less anthropocentric. Like we, clearly a big problem is that we thought it was all about us. We didn't care about all the other species and now we've got ourselves into a right mess. So let's be less anthropocentric and that will help us get out of this mess. And I think the conundrum there is twofold. One is like, well, the Anthropocene is like, we already are dominating. So being less anthropocentric is, you kind of have to take stock of where you've got to, which is this is a world dominated by the Anthropos. But I think there's also a challenge that, I mean, if we're talking and we're humans and we're using human language and we're trying to communicate together, um, it's impossible to escape being anthropocentric, I think. And it's impossible to escape anthropomorphism because it's the only way to utilize language to make sense of anything. So you're kind of caught in this cycle of trying to escape something you can't escape. I think this framing that Crockett's got, this Amerindian worldview that proceeds from the human and then sort of subtracts difference was how I understood it is a very, very different way of thinking about that. And I don't know if that's, uh, if that becomes a solution to the problem I just posed, you know, actually let's give up trying to think outside the human. Let's just acknowledge we can only think within the human. And then by thinking from within that frame, we can actually more credibly impart our idea of being and life and agency to all sorts of other non-human or more than human beings or assemblages or objects or whatever language we want to use. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I, I read it in a similar way that I think I more kind of sensed than actually got <laughs> and or understood the opening or the possibilities that were in there for, for thinking beyond that, which I've also been struggling with recently writing about like human distinctiveness, reaching. So, so how do we kind of kill the human, like as in like the 60s, they were trying to kill the author, and like, killing God, we did in radical theology, and now we want to kill the humans or how do we do that and and can we and or do we risk uh, a resurrection like no matter what which it seems like we're doing and so I also sense that there was something here it was some, something similar to when Foucault says the soul is is the body's prison not the other way around it's not like we're imprisoned in our bodies it's that we're our ideas of how our bodies or sexuality or so should be is the prison of our bodies so it's a similar kind of turnaround I sense if we acknowledge that it's a social reality that our ideas, I guess it's kind of Kantian as well, that it, if we acknowledge that we are in this human conception of reality, then that's our starting point. And whatever we see will be a mirror of that. So rather than kind of reaching for the other as nature, which because the other will also be like construction of 
the kind of stranger that we already know as the stranger. But if we then acknowledge that we're already in kind of this human prison, then maybe we can relate otherwise to the natural world. But still, I also, though, feel that isn't there a risk of these kind of twists and turns? Isn't it still kind of stuck in the same kind of logic that there is the one origin and then there is the other that the representation is like, oh, no, it was not. It was not the nature that was out there and the, like the, the firm ground of everything. It was culture, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I had the same thought. And I think that where Crockett relates uh, Latour and his notion of the Terrans, the, the people from the earth, as those who are opposed to the humans, those who separate from the earth and dominate. Um, and this comes back to the conversation we had at the end of the last our last discussion, Matt, about, you know, I'm saying, Latour is saying, in order to avoid war, we have to name by whom we are convoked. This is what that Terrans thing is about. It's about the people of the earth are called by the earth. The humans are called by some other colonial uh, and that they are at war. The critique from Viveros de Castro and others has been, there's a whole group of societies who already operate like this and, and Latour has ignored them, which um, may be a very fair critique. But I do think that there's something about Latour's account of agency as really distributed that doesn't allow for the formation of culture uh, as an objective reality in the way that Baviras de Castro is describing it, as far as Crockett's put that forward. So I, I don't see those things as entirely the same. And I think that that's where, I, for me, Latour has been interesting because he resists any sort of, um, any willingness to accept an origin as a kind of ground from which other things can be theorised. Um and in that he's following Schlutterdick, who really wants to destroy the globe. His whole work on spheres, you, know, you have to just break down the whole. There is no whole. There's only parts uh, or there's only networks. Um, it does feel like a different way of, of conceiving. I'm not saying one's better or one's worse, but it does feel different. I would say then the critique of Latour is that you can end up with something that's so fragmented you could never actually achieve peace. Whereas the Amerindian worldview, as I've understood it here, feels like it has a kind of deeper integration. But does it only work as a deeper integration if you're not kind of fundamentally threatened by some massive, uh, almost alien power uh, that comes in from outside and destroys the world that you've been navigating? Those are a series of questions. I don't think I have answers to those. But I just, I'm not sure that I see the two things as entirely the same. There were moments in here where I thought he was leaning or gesturing towards or reaching for a kind of monism. And then he quickly disabused me of that and uh, making sure that we don't lose sight of the conversation around energy here, I think is important because I think he wants to associate that uh, reconfigured conception of humanity and connect that to this idea of energy. I think this is an important point in his thinking, but I also find it really enigmatic because he's almost talking about, this isn't the language he uses, but a field of energy or a sort of undifferentiated infinity of energy. Yeah, and I think the key moment where that gets brought together in this chapter is um, on page 194, where he, he, took, he, he wants to relate the practice of gift exchange, as Karatani had been describing it, within this Amerindian worldview that that type of gift exchange is an exchange of persons so we're not necessarily talking about humans we're talking about objects as gifts whether they're persons or animals or whoever all, all of those things are, are persons and so Crockett then says Viveros de Castro argues that gift exchange kinship and animism are merely different names for the same personification process the economic political and religious faces of a single generalized symbolic economy. Gift exchange, kinship and animism 
are merely different names for the same personification process, the economic, political and religious faces of a single generalised symbolic economy. So then after that, he's he's wanting to say, and so I'm looking to thinkers like Latour and Barad to describe this in a genteel terms. It's about agency and rather than labeling by species or type, you know, animate or inanimate, human or object, trying to describe phenomena in terms of agency is a way of allowing us to think about forms of exchange, which was absolutely the focus of the previous chapter in terms of an exchange of persons and within that to be able to talk about spirit that there's something in that exchange that requires us to reach for the language of spirit and i think that comes to your point about energy there max that's it, how energy constructs and maintains form which has been a key theme of this book and how it is excessive and spills out beyond and is wasteful feels to me something to do with crockett's conception of spirit here Related to that, or at least uh, some are related to that, is that something that has kind of uh, troubled me or that I, I can't really get around, but maybe you, since you've been talking about this for a few episodes now, is this idea of energy. When he starts talking about persons and spirits, and I really, really like that because I've been so annoyed with going into indigenous studies. I've been encountering all of these ways of trying to translate into kind of a more digested form where you can actually accept that no but they're not actually talking to spirits to tree spirits it's more kind of uh, you know a personal development thing <laughs> whatever you know you, you want to translate these traditions into something that is kind of house broken in a, in a western modern world but he doesn't go down that road. He wants this, no, but let's think it's actually spirits. So, so what happens and how does that challenge our ways of thinking? But then what I can't get over, I guess it's this process thinking still laying underneath so that it's all an expression of the same thing. In a way, it's like this energy taking all of these different appearances. And so whatever like reality tries to express, it's still energy <laughs> do you get what i mean yeah to, to me, in that sense that kind of risks turning all of this in, into a kind of monotheism yeah uh, yeah no i totally agree with that and that's one of the things i'm i'm kind of struggling with a little bit in this chapter as well i think he tries to address it at least further down on 195 let's see in this respect energy as such is the universal potentiating principle that Amazonians think in terms of an anthropomorphic humanity, and I think this is gets to it a little bit more. It is the differentiated form of energy that is contained in material bodies and beings. So I, I guess I'm, my question there is like, is the differentiation there how it appears in form, or is energy itself differentiated in some way i mean maybe this gets to a difference that we want to try to parse out between like you were saying matt uh energy and spirit because i think he tries to describe spirit as some either variety of energy or an effect of energy or something that escapes energy so i i'm not really clear on the relationship of energy and spirit here i get the sense that he's certainly not wanting to flatten the two together but the precise way that those things are relating is unclear to me yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I feel the same way. And I think the question about is energy a kind of totalizing, it's not even so much a totalizing concept, but a, a kind of basically everything is energy at the end of the day. Replacing a substance, yeah. metaphysics, with another kind of substrate that is energetic. Yeah, that's how I'm reading this book. Um, but it would be really interesting. I mean, we'll talk to Clayton after we've finished uh, reviewing these chapters. I think that'd be a really interesting question to put to him because. I think the point you've made there, Matt, about differentiated energy, uh, just trying to understand more about that, I think is um, it's really valuable. I mean, it, it may be that it's like, well, because it, it, I'm not sure that energy is the, as in the end, what everything is, is necessarily quite the same as saying it's a substrate in the sense that the way that Crockett's then narrating how energy 
operates and he's trying to do that in rigorously scientific terms as well as in the language of political economy and religion and theology and so on is that it creates all of these different valences that we like to speak in and relate in and think in it's not saying that there's actually just one thing that dominates everything it's more that here's how we could in my language it's here's how we could translate these things uh it feels very like michelle serres's project which was to do that to how would you translate between the in Sarah's own word, he has this quote about translating between the mathematical, the animist, the religious. He goes on to talk about the architectural. Like, how do you, how do you actually translate between these modes? Where if energy is a way that you could, materially speaking, not just semiotically speaking, translate between those, then that's actually really interesting, I think. Hmm. It still doesn't necessarily eradicate the problem of one if there's one thing at the, at the root of all things. Well, and I wonder if this will be the, the bringing in of Mary Jane Rubenstein's work will be important in some sense here too, because this is a, something she deals with in her, uh, her book on pantheologies. Yeah. I mean, I think that both Mary Jane and Clayton are, I mean, it's not necessarily where they end up. And I definitely think the way that he describes energy, I would mean in all of these different chapters, also if we see the chapters taken together as a kind of assemblage of energy and change, then definitely it's more kind of multifaceted. Uh, since I've been going into the indigenous spirituality of the Arctic North recently, I've been talking to a lot of people and reading a lot of stuff on that, and I sense that the kind of indigenous conversation partners that he had chosen here stand closer to a kind of Western worldview in the sense that they have a kind of thought world and also the Chinese tradition in, in his way of describing it. It is a kind of system for thought. That is what I find so challenging and also inspiring when digging into Northern Arctic indigenous spirituality is that it, it has no orthodoxy and unorthodoxy. It's like you, you can't be a heretic because it's like you don't have that. It's like more that you build on practices together with stories. So you have these like stories, myths that are kind of loose. Uh, you retell them so they're alive and they're part of culture. And you have these things that you do, but you don't have like a book that sums it all up. Like you do this because of that, or this relates to that deity, or it's no system. It's just a tradition that is more kind of a stream of like different stuff, <laughs> you know, you, you go into that stream and then you say, and then you're part of it kind of, and that's how you live your life. And it relates to those actual stones and that actual rock or that actual mountain or whatever, but it's, you can't write it down in a book and sell it like down in Paris or so, because it just wouldn't work that way. And that I find is something that to me, that is even closer to the kind of time image idea of if we actually want to challenge our ways of, of structuring reality, then, for instance, turning uh, nature into culture. Or, yeah, I mean, that's a diffraction that I sense is not necessarily there in the examples that she chooses. It's interesting in the context of this chapter, when we get to the point where we move into Haitian voodoo, I feel like we start to get more into a description of that kind of, you know, there isn't a totalizing worldview or story or conception. Uh, it's very clear that there's no hierarchy in the voodoo system, as it were. There's like priests and priestesses who are practicing rituals. And perhaps that is why he wants to say that it's Haitian voodoo that and particularly the bit with the horse really represents this time image because then we are actually out of some systematized environment which is not to um say that that's not a, a good critique of the book as a whole but i think in the context of this chapter in that moment he does start to talk about a different kind of experience i wonder if it's worth us talking a bit more about that about the haitian voodoo are we actually um, coming to the horse we're coming to the horse but Quickly, as you, as you were speaking there, it made me think about the importance of the situating of the discussion about voodoo within this broader uh, political slash revolutionary framework. I don't think he goes so far as to explicate the connection he's wanting to make between that sort of political history 
and voodoo as a practice um, in the way that you're describing it. But I think it is suggestive and worth keeping in mind as a framework, the slave revolt of, of Haiti and, and so on. Yeah, I think that's really important, actually, and to link that to uh, Schlotterdijk, because Schlotterdijk is writing and almost taking the mick out of European societies who are constantly facing the end. And it's this constant in the shadow of, you know, whether it's climate apocalypse or nuclear apocalypse or whatever other, you know, even COVID or, and, you know, there's always something that's about to end everything for us. And so we've got absolutely no hope, but all we do is constantly try and self-improve, which we got stuck in. Um, Crockett then later in the, the kind of narration of this chapter says the end of the world happened in 1492. So Christopher Columbus lands on the island he calls Espanola, um, the island that we now call Haiti and uh, the Dominican Republic. And the history of that movement of European colonialism is tied into everything we've been exploring in previous chapters in terms of a massive extractive economy, um, the extraction of bodies from West Africa transported across uh, the Atlantic in the form of the slave trade, the massive production of additional capital through slave labor, which could fuel the industrial revolution. And so there's, there's so many things here that are joined up. Um, and what we said at the start of this conversation about the idea of time, that this uh, European narrative that has indigenous Americans as kind of like a, a forgotten small thing that unfortunately some bad things happen to, uh, rather than as it's become very clear in more recent years, there's a population of 100 million on the Americas before Europeans arrive, very sophisticated farming cultures, and the huge forests of North America, for example, which provided one of the largest carbon sinks since around the 17th century, are only possible because of the mass eradication of the human population as a result of settlement and farming falling apart, trees regenerating. So there's a very, very complex ecosystem and economic, uh, political economy and political ecology implications to this. And that's the backstory to the slave rebellion in San Domingo, as it was, uh, that becomes Haiti, where voodoo religion, which is a kind of inheritance of various African religions, under a sort of Roman Catholic uh, shroud for some time to, as, a, as a means of political survival, uh, kind of breaks free and sparks this slave rebellion, the only successful slave rebellion in the so-called New World. Uh, and that's the context for then talking about Haitian voodoo. So, I, yeah, I think that political context is really important, not just in this chapter, but in the context of the, the book so far. Does one of you want to talk more about what, Haitian voodoo involves? Uh, yeah, I hear galloping in the distance, so go ahead. <laughs> no, but that, that was really good uh, that you set that kind of scene because I also think it's really uh, important. And uh, you can see it also kind of shines through in uh, the way in which uh, democracy and Derrida's uh, concept of democracy comes into this text, which is, I mean, if I was an editor of the text, I, I may want to like, could we add an extra sentence here so yeah. that we can yeah. see how <laughs> you go from, from this to that? But but I, I mean, I still think that the, the text works and, and the, exactly because of the interstitches in a way. But yes, we're getting to the horse. So I'm not so into Haitian voodoo. Is any of you a practicer of that? No, I've never partaken. No, no, me neither. But he, he describes uh, a ritual where someone becomes uh, the carrier of the Eva, which is so, uh, like I said, that Haitian voodoo is similar to a kind of uh, monotheism in the sense that it actually has a kind of one deity above the others and then uh, different kind of spirits that can that can express this one deity's uh, wills and wishes and, and messages to the world. But in order to do that, you need these evas, which are then of different kind and so, but to enter into a person that then can be the spokesperson through which the eva speaks. And that person is then described as the horse that the eva is riding. 
so if you become the horse, you are kind of the one carrying the message into the world. But this ritual is different from Christian rituals that we are used to kind of reading as a narrative or as a drama or so that like first we begin here and then we get forgiveness for our sins. And then so then we can stand up and say this or whatever. But this is more kind of the Eva enters and then the horse (laughs) starts galloping and you just get what you get. And this is kind of the energies of reality that are talking to us and we just need to take it as it is and and it's not digested and it's not linear and and so this is a kind of expression of well reality and the messiness of of energies and and how they function and and they are way beyond any kind of human conception of a system and so when I then said that that Clayton becomes uh, the horse <laughs> that <laughs> he's kind of ridden by the Eva that is expressing energy in the way that it kind of materializes and appears in this world through this book, which then makes the inconsistencies of the book that I perhaps as an editor would have wanted to kind of, my my fingers would have itched to do something about it. But if I would have, then I would not have let the Eva transmit into the world through Clayton. So that is kind of what I meant. And that's why I wanted to read this chapter more as a kind of assemblage than as a kind of argument. I mean, arguments, that's a very colonial thing. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that's brilliant, Petra. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I love that. I mean, I can't can't really picture, maybe I'll try to picture Clayton in a trance state of some kind, a sort of ecstatic state. I don't know. I can't Uh, not see him (laughs) (laughs) as a... Having the Eva on his shoulders as well. Well, that's the thing. I'm going to. You've inspired me. I think, like for the uh, for the episode image, I'll get into some heavy photoshopping. Should it be Clayton's head on a horse's body or a horse's head on Clayton's body? Okay, I'm sorry. I think I'm, jo- I'm joking. No, I was just genuinely thinking I about it for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the sort of theurgic elements are really interesting here in the sense that there's a sort of, I, I'm not sure what the right word is, a sort of channeling or articulation of chaos. That person through this possession gains a kind of authority. Um, yeah, I really like it. I mean, I, I would say I haven't experienced that, but I find writing generally is the activity I participate in the world where I most feel like something is happening through me. I'm not doing it. I write things. Sometimes I write really good things, and I'm like, I have no idea how I wrote that. I obviously was involved, but something happened that was not me, or at least it wasn't just me. And um, I find that a really helpful way to think about reading this chapter, because I hadn't thought about it like that at all. And it feels like I'm, uh, even just as you were saying that, Petra, I'm thinking about my experience of reading this chapter and appreciating some of what's happening in me as a reader because I feel like I'm encountering a kind of spiritual energy for want of better words, which frankly I still want, but I I can appreciate it differently in in this context. So yeah, I found that really valuable. interesting in the context of just talking about Haitian voodoo to just pick up on the comment about Derrida and democracy a little bit because I wasn't sure if I was totally convinced by it but I thought it was very interesting and so the idea is when Derrida talks about democracy it's always this thing that is uh, or this event that's somehow out of reach you don't reach democracy democracy is one of those things like justice that is always to come so it always kind of haunts it always uh, calls or um, for, or insists from somewhere else. So the Crockett out of nowhere wants to suggest that somehow Haitian voodoo is kind of because of its lack of authority structure within the the kind of priestly caste, for, for want of a better word, that somehow this is a kind of radical democracy that's always out of reach, but which is it's always moving towards, and that, that this is part of the spiritual energy. 
I don't know if that's just a comment about Haitian voodoo or if that's something about this like broader perspective that he's trying to engage in this chapter generally. But I'm thinking about Latour at the end of We Have Never Been Modern talks about the parliament of things, which is a different concept, but the idea that democracy has to involve more beings. Like you can't imagine your society without cattle and jet engines and whatever like so thinking democracy has to think a broader collective if you kind of read that with Derrida's idea that this is always something that is insisting on there being more of it there's more somewhere I wonder what that does to help bring about this multinaturalist perspective or not it was just a, a thought I had but I don't I'm not sure I have an answer to it the other thing in terms of democracy is, I mean, I think he's trying to draw out the um, religious dimension of democracy in the invocation of democracy, a democracy which is always to come. It's never sort of fully realized. And he makes this connection explicit when he invokes Heidegger. Uh, Derrida relates this idea of democracy to Heidegger's claim that only a God can save us. Because the God that Heidegger perhaps was invoking is not the God that we would normally invoke, right? It's not the God of the one. It's not the God of liberal democracy as we understand it, right? It, it's a democracy to come. So there's a radical opening in that invocation of democracy that is religious in an important sense. I wonder what this means in terms of Clayton's view on, on the state. It's not something he talks about, but given the sort of more anarchic starting point that could take a democratic form, I think that's something I want to ask him about is uh, what what does that entail for our conception of the state, if at all? Yeah, I think it'd be an interesting question to ask. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I just to say one, uh, this is point for listeners. Petra, you've been saying Eva. I think it's Loire. Yeah, it's uh, Loire. That's right. It's This is a Swede talking. Yeah, thank you. The way it's written, the L looks like an I, so it's like yeah. hard to yeah. tell if you're reading it. I, I, I double-checked no, it. It's it. An L. Yeah, it's an L. Oh, in my head, I was saying you were the whole time. So thank you for that. <laughs> There's something else I, it's coming to mind uh, when I was reading this this morning. Uh, he takes pains to resist, uh, refuse any kind of determinism uh, whatsoever. And yet when he describes our situation, I think oftentimes he describes it as something that we cannot change. And he's very sort of firm on that point. And then there's a kind of almost deterministic outcome that I think I think could be read out of that. I'm not sure what to make of it, but I do think about it in relation to Spinoza, who is, you know, by all accounts, a determinist. And yet that determinism is what creates the possibility for freedom or the power to act. And I wonder if there's this kind of similar thing going on here as well. Yeah, I think that's been a key question for our whole reading is like, especially, I think, in a chapter like this, where we're talking about agency, we're saying agency is actually one of the main ways we should actually think about the world. And what I find really interesting about how Latour frames agency is he wants to guard against the excesses of overanimating or deanimating. And so you kind of like, I have to give more agency to non-human or more than human beings. I might also have to reconfigure the limits of how I imagine my own agency to, to actually see that maybe I have less agency than I thought I did. And actually appreciating that helps me. I don't know if it helps me act or just helps me make sense of the world I'm in or helps me allow for more other beings to act. Or if I acknowledge the action of other beings, I'm more able to react in an authentic or a constructive way or something like that. Um, Perhaps this is where the time image becomes important again, right? Because it opens up this sort of interregnum, this sort of interstice where thought can happen. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this time image is really, it's really helped me this conversation to think about what that time image means. Now I can see why that's very valuable in the sense of, in a context of trying to get beyond solutionism. I'm thinking that solutionism and 
the entire idea of finding a solution or changing, I guess, through thinking. That is something that kind of bothers me, that that seems to be a presupposition here. And I mean, obviously, the three of us are are people who, who do think that to some extent thinking can get us somewhere. But we also, all, the all three of us know that, well, not so far. Well, and, and, and this relates also to the Chinese section, which we haven't talked so much about, when he then talks about Li as a principle, uh, she as a pattern, I mean, Li as, as principle and pattern, and wanting to turn the qi and the li around as kind of what comes first. Uh, I feel that that is yet another move, which is kind of, is it nature or is it culture, hen or the egg, <laughs> what comes first? But all of those ways of approaching reality are stuck in in an elevation for thought, which I think a different way would be to actually be the horse, I mean, the sense of actually that bodily kind of ritual of like an actual presence and not this kind of distanced attempt at creating a new system for thought. To sum up what I tried to say here, we reach the limit of what thinking can do also in a sense, I think, in this argument here, because I mean... I think that there is a knowing and a way of being in reality in relation to the energies of this world that lies beyond whatever we can systematize. And I think that his chapter expresses that. That resonates with me. And I think that's right. And I think uh, scattered throughout here, there's gestures that Clayton is making to not only, of course, we need to change the way that we think, but in terms of our religious practice. Uh, I think he's fairly explicit about that, that we need to change our, change our spiritual practices so that they're not uh, so, on one hand, ascetic, um, but on the other hand, sort of disconnected from these forces of energy. And, you know, Richard, who is a, a listener of the show, Richard Wilshire, he was asking an interesting question in relation to this chapter about whether this kind of opens the door up to a sort of reinvigorated Pentecostalism. I think that's right. I think so too. I think that there could be, I, yeah, definitely. I think that we should have a, a radical theology movement that is a kind of uh, inverted, perverted uh, Pentecostalism, charismatic, like tent meetings, <laughs> riding horses. Yeah, that's going to be at the next AAR. AAR. Yeah, yeah. I can be one of the priestesses if you're one of these priests i had a similar thought actually when i was reading the account of the voodoo ceremonies i was like this is not a million miles away from pentecostalism which has a similar kind of inheritance i mean it's essentially slave culture you know via various routes gone global as a christian phenomenon yeah yeah and the speaking in tongues i also thought of that yeah so we've been going for roughly 90 minutes. And I know there's there's definitely a lot more here that we could talk about, but I think we should probably wrap it up. I'm sure you guys have other things to do as well. Any um, thing you guys want to uh, get in at the end here? I know we didn't talk a lot about the, the Chinese tradition. I'm actually okay with that. <laughs> it gets a little bit complicated. Yeah, I felt like that was incredibly complicated and sort of interesting to a point. I'm not sure it's the main thing that's added to this book. I did have one thing I wanted to reflect on about the opening in this chapter where or at the, I think it's the end of the first section, he makes a comment about how in a European worldview where you think about nature as stable and culture as relative, there's all these little cultural stories, but they mask the big story of global capitalism uh, that kind of is everywhere. And on one level, I totally agree with that. Uh, but I also think that it's interesting when we're thinking about energy and in the context of this book how crockett's been talking about how energy and entropy across multiple competing gradients maintains form and that gives us this problem of how do things change everything's always changing but it actually becomes really hard to change and so you talk about dynamics not just thermodynamics but dynamics of systems and global capitalism it seems to me is one of these absolutely overwhelming systems that the system dynamics 
produce the narratives. And the whole thing about it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism is partly because the dynamics are so difficult to change. I was thinking about that, Petra, when you were talking about thinking doesn't get us out of this, uh, or thinking is not a solutionism, but changing, changing our practice, finding a reinvigorated spiritual practice may be part of being differently in the world. And I think when we think about that in terms of the dynamics of systems that really is uh, are fueled by energy and the exchange of being, in Crockett's terms, then those practices become insertions in that system, but they require immense amount of energy to make that insertion. That's where I think that the voodoo thing is really interesting as a revolt. It's an insertion of energy into a very powerful system of slavery. It's the only one that's ever managed to do it. Uh, it managed to kind of break free. And even that was marred by all sorts of really challenging scenarios. So I, I think that sense of like spiritual practice that takes courageous energy to to find some way to not to solve, but to just in, insert and disrupt. I think there's a real case for that in, in the context of this. Yeah, I just want to quickly add that kind of myth of the global economy or the capitalist structure could also be retold in a similar way, as Slayton has done here, as a multiplicity of economies. I mean, in on the micro level, on all of the different ways that economy actually functions on the local level. So that is also kind of part of a, a similar, I think, myth building and the, or creation of a myth and also have an openness to, to practice and to revolts of practice. Mm. Nice. Yeah, I suppose we should uh, leave it there. Thanks. Yeah, great talking. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Clayton, for a great book. I feel I felt a bit uh, critical, maybe. Oh, as, like as, you, as you should be. Yeah. yeah. It is a great book. Otherwise, we're, you know, it's where all the fun is. <laughs> all right. I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you. Yeah, good to see you. Bye. All right. You too. Peace.